Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name's Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville 106.5 FM. This show is about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that's important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Researchers at Princeton are using a video game to help map the brain. As a result, six new neuron types have been discovered. Eyewire is the name of the game. So far, 265,000 people have contributed to mapping retinal neural cells, and over 3,000 cells have been mapped. The reason researchers need help is that neurons are kind of long and tangled amongst each other. So players of the game help identify and separate out the individual neural cells. Computers are not great at doing this yet, but each action taken by the humans helps the machine learn and refine its own skills. In the world of science, structure is a great way to help understand function. So mapping the retina may help researchers understand other important functions of this organ, like the first steps of visual perception. Specifically, they have been looking at the ganglion cells of the eye, which connect to the back of the brain. With this new mapping data, it was determined that there are actually between 35 and 50 different types of ganglion cells. When before, people only thought there were 15 or 20 different cell types. So I decided to start playing this game, and it was actually a lot more challenging than I thought it would be. First, you're trained on how the program works with already mapped neurons. Basically, this neuron exists in a three-dimensional space. The already mapped portion of this neuron is shown in the three-dimensional structure on the screen. And on the other half of the screen, you have single two-dimensional images. These images are slices or cross-sections of the three-dimensional cube where the neuron is in. Like I mentioned, the neurons are all kind of tangled together, so your job is to move through the two-dimensional slices and trace the path of the neuron, which has been roughly started for you already. But because the image is filled with other neurons and your neuron of interest is changing shape and moving around over and under cells, it can be hard to determine where the neuron has come back into the field of view after disappearing under another portion of a neuron. It seems there are many fans of the game. There's a leaderboard with players from all over the globe. Some even play for as many as 30 hours a week. As a reward, these players get to help name these new neurons. On the research side, little is known yet about their functions, given they were only recently identified. A paper recently published in the journal Cell describes their digital museum of these mapped neurons, allowing all researchers to access their structure. I'll post a link to this game on the Facebook page so you guys can try it out. And again, it's a lot more challenging than you might think. One of the most interesting questions in biology is very fundamental to biology, and that is, how many species are there on Earth? Now, there's currently about 1.6 million known biological species on Earth, but new species are being discovered every day, and so that number is getting larger all the time. And so where the controversy is has to do with, well, how many species have yet to be discovered? What's the total number that we could expect to find eventually? And that number is anywhere from 10 million. Don't forget, we now know of about 1.6 million. So maybe there's 10 million organisms for us to find. But the number could go up to 2 billion. And the National Science Foundation recently put out a number a couple years ago that the number of total species on Earth could be as high as a trillion And so we've only discovered 1.6 million out of maybe a trillion different species. 
we've got a long ways to go. Now, I do have to tell you that the vast majority of these new species that we don't know about yet, they're bacteria. So if you're envisioning that the biologists who are out discovering all these new species are dressed in their khaki shorts with a safari hat and a butterfly net in their hand, that's a little bit of what's going to have to go on. But a lot of this identification of new species is going to have to be done by microbiologists who are more likely wearing lab coats and holding micropipe headers. Just one scoop of soil can contain millions of species of bacteria. So needless to say, we only know of a tiny fraction of the number of species that have lived on Earth. Well, scientists are discovering about 18,000 new species of organisms every year. We're talking 18,000 new species of animals, plants, fungi, protists, and bacteria. Now, not all of these species are alive. Some of them are fossils, representing species that are extinct. And some of these species are organisms we've known about before, but they've been renamed or they've been reclassified, usually based on their DNA sequence. But still, 18,000 new species a year, that's a big number. So these 18,000 species every year, some of them are bound to be very exotic and interesting life forms. And some are probably going to be a little less, let's say, photogenic, <laughs> like bacteria. Not much to look at there. But don't get me wrong, even the lowliest, simplest, most boring wallflower of a bacteria still contains a lot of important information. There could be DNA sequences, enzymes, biochemical molecules found in some lowly bacteria that has never been found before. Some of these new species of bacteria are being found in very unusual places, places that just haven't been examined before. And the ability of that bacteria to be able to live in that certain environment could mean that that species is making a lot of strange biomolecules that might actually have industrial or medical applications. So this exploration of our biodiversity is a very important endeavor. These newly discovered species are important to understanding how ecosystems are working. It's easier to study the process of evolution when there are more species to examine. These new species might provide useful biochemical molecules or genetic material that could have agricultural or industrial or commercial or medical uses. And finally, the more the public realizes how much wonder and fascination there is in the natural world, the more likely they're going to fight to preserve it. Regarding that last point, in the spirit of encouraging the public to really appreciate biodiversity, Every year, the International Institute for Species Exploration publishes a list of the top 10 most interesting new species that have been discovered that year. This institute is composed of taxonomists from around the world, and what they do is examine all of the new species submissions from the previous year, and they compile a list of the 10 most interesting ones. This list is usually released around May 23rd each year to commemorate the birthday of Carl Linnaeus, the father of modern taxonomy. Carl Linnaeus was a scientist who lived in Sweden in the 1700s, and he devoted his life to developing a methodical way of naming and classifying plants and animals. Carl Linnaeus developed the binomial nomenclature system we use to name organisms even now, like humans are called Homo sapiens. And he's the reason we use Latin to describe the scientific name of different species. 
He's the reason botanists count the number of flower petals and sepals and count the male and female sex parts when identifying a plant. So I think it's very fitting that they release this list of the top 10 most interesting new species on Carl Linnaeus' birthday. Well, what are the top 10 new species selected by the International Institute for Species Exploration? And I will do some quoting from the IISE article, since they know more about these species than I do. The first new species of the year is a protist called Ancorasista twista. Ancorasista twista, that's quite a name. Now, this particular species is a protist. Protists are not animals, although when you look at them under the microscope, they seem sort of animal-like because they can move. Protists are typically aquatic. You usually find them in water. They're usually very small. You typically need a microscope to see them. And some examples of protists that we've already known about are protozoa, amoeba, single-celled algae, like plankton, things like that. This particular species was not discovered in the wild. It was actually found in an aquarium in San Diego. It lives in the water. It propels itself with a whip-like flagella. And it has a harpoon-shaped organelle that it uses to immobilize other protists that it feeds on. So it's a predator. One of the unique things about this species is its mitochondria. The mitochondria do a lot of important things in our cells, like provide chemical energy. But mitochondria does contain DNA, and it turns out that Ancorosista twista has even a higher amount of DNA in its mitochondria compared to other protists. They don't actually know where this species occurs on Earth naturally, because the only place they found it is in this aquarium at the Scripps Institute in San Diego. It was growing on a brain coral there. The second new species on this list is a plant. It grows in the Amazon forest in Brazil, and it's called Denisia jurana faco. Denisia jurana faco. Now, you might be thinking, dude, just give me the common name. Don't give me that scientific nomenclature. But here's the problem. This is a new species. It hasn't been known before, and so there is no common name. They have to use a scientific name. Now, Denisia is the genus that this plant belongs to. It's in the legume family, the bean family, the pea family. Some trees that are common to Kentuckiana that are also in the legume family are black locust, redbud trees, Kentucky coffee tree. Anyway, they've known about one other species of Denisia tree that grew in the Amazon forest, Denisia excelsa, and that was discovered 100 years ago. But now they've got a second species of that genus. Kew Gardens in England calls this new species the world's heaviest living organism. It's something like 130 feet tall. It's so tall that it emerges above the canopy of the other trees. It's semi-deciduous. It grows along creeks and grows in wet soil. This is a massive tree. They estimate it to be about 62 tons in weight. But even though it's big, there's not very many of them. It's thought that there's only 25 individuals in Brazil. About half of them are in a protected area, but the other half aren't, which means this is a critically endangered species. So this is sad. It's sort of like meeting a new friend, only to have them become terminally ill. But to get back to describe our new friend, it is a legume, so it produces a pod, a woody pod. It kind of looks like a Kentucky coffee tree pod, except it's much bigger The pods on this Denisia tree are 18 inches in length. 
Another valuable thing about this tree is that it appears to serve as a home to a lot of vertebrate animals, especially birds. This part of the Brazilian forest where the tree occurs is home to something like half of the threatened animal species in Brazil. So by protecting this tree, we would also be protecting the lives of a lot of vertebrate species in the area. The third species on our list is an animal. It's an animal called Epimaria quasimodo. Epimaria quasimodo. And it's an amphipod. An amphipod is in the crustacean order of animals, like the shrimp. So it sort of looks like a shrimp. It's about two inches in length. And again, it's called Epimaria quasimodo. The species name is alluding to Victor Hugo's character Quasimodo in the book Hunchback of Notre Dame. And it's because this little amphipod has sort of a humped back. I'll do a little bit of quoting from the IISE article. So I'm quoting here. Uh, This is one of 26 new species of amphipods of the genus Epimaria from the Southern Ocean with incredible spines and vivid colors. The number of species and their extraordinary morphological structures and colors makes the genus Epimeria an icon of the Southern Ocean that includes both free-swimming predators and sessile filter feeders. Still quoting from the IISE article, it says, This genus is abundant in the glacial waters circulating south of the polar front, and their crested adornments are reminiscent of mythological dragons. When a treatment of the genus was published in 2007, many researchers assumed that the species was rather completely known, but using a combination of morphology and DNA evidence, a Belgian pair of investigators have demonstrated in their comprehensive monograph just how little we yet to know of these spectacular invertebrates. So it sounds like they're learning a lot from this new species, Epimaria quasimodo. Congratulations to E. Quasimodo for making the list. The fourth organism on this list is another animal. It's native to Costa Rica, and its scientific name is Nymphister cronori. Nymphister cronori. It's a beetle. And I think I'll quote from this press release, too. Nymphister cronori is a tiny beetle that lives among ants. At about 1.5 millimeter in length, 16 of them could line up head to tail in the space of one inch. But their story gets much better. They live exclusively among one species of army ant, Aceton mexicanum. The host ants, as with other army ants, do not construct permanent nests but are nomadic. In the case of E. mexicanum, they spend two to three weeks on the move, making raids each day to capture thousands of prey items. Then they spend two to three weeks in one location. While the beetle can move about and feed while the host colony is stationary, it must make the trip with the ants when they are on the move to a new location. The beetle's body is the precise size, shape, and color of the abdomen of a worker ant. The beetle uses its mouth parts to grab the skinny portion of the host's abdomen and hangs on, letting the ant do the walking. At a glance, an ant with the beetle on board appears to have two abdomens, but the upper one is a beetle. Like other species of animals that are ant lovers, these beetles must use chemical signals or other adaptations to avoid becoming prey themselves. Exactly how that works in the case of Nymphister cronori is yet to be determined.
Number five on our list of the top 10 most interesting new species of 2018 is an orangutan, the Tapanuli orangutan. The scientific name is Pongo tapanuliensis. Now, the orangutan is part of the great ape group. The great apes are basically large, tailless primates, and they include species like gorillas, chimpanzees, humans, and the orangutan. And the orangutan is the only great ape that is native to Asia. The previously known species of orangutan occur on the Indonesian islands of Sumatra and Borneo, and they knew about this third species of orangutan back in the 1930s even, except they sort of lost track of it. In 1997, they sort of rediscovered this species. And what really helped, I guess you could say, is when some villagers killed an adult male of this new species of orangutan, and that provided a body for the researchers to study. They studied both the morphology, the anatomy of the animal, but they also looked at it at the DNA level and just recently published a paper where they're suggesting that this is a different species of orangutan than those previously known. They also conclude that the Tapanuli orangutan diverged from the other orangutan species something like 3.4 million years ago, which is long before the other two species diverged from each other. The sad part of this story is that this new species of orangutan is already threatened. There are estimated to be only about 800 animals left in this part of Sumatra, and there are plans underway to build a new hydroelectric power plant in the area where they occur, and that could put a lot of pressure on that population. So even though scientists are just recognizing this new orangutan species, it could disappear. Number six on our list is called Swire's Snailfish, Pseudoliparus swirei, a snailfish. Apparently, some researchers laid a trap to catch organisms living in the deepest part of the world's oceans we know of, which is the Mariana Trench in the western Pacific Ocean. So they trapped whatever they could at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, and one of the organisms they got was a small tadpole-like fish, a little over four inches long. There's lots of species of snailfish out there, and they're known to occur at all depths of the ocean, from tidal pools all the way down to the deepest part of the ocean. In fact, they had previously photographed this particular snailfish using underwater cameras, but they hadn't captured one. This was the first opportunity to actually examine one. Researchers think that the deepest part of the ocean that any sort of organism should be able to live is about 27,000 feet below sea level. And when they photographed this snailfish, that's the depth they were at. It's believed that this species is a predator, and it's the most important predator at the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean. So welcome to our list, Pseudoliparus swarii. Number seven on our list of top ten new species is a plant, Schiaphila sujimodi. Now, of course, most plants are photosynthetic. They're green, they contain chlorophyll, they can carry out the process of photosynthesis, converting solar energy into a chemical energy that the plant can use, and that's where we get all of our energy, too. Well, this particular plant is not photosynthetic. It's not green. It's purple. It derives its energy from other organisms because it lives in partnership with fungi. This particular fungus that it lives symbiotically with is mostly underground, 
And so this plant lives underground with the fungus, and that's why it took so long to discover this species. And so this fungus and this plant are living in symbiotic relationship with each other. They're helping each other out. And then when the environmental conditions are perfect, it'll emerge from the soil. It just looks like little purple strings when you see pictures of it. It doesn't really have any leaves because it doesn't photosynthesize. It doesn't need leaves. It's just purple stems and produces a very beautiful, small purple flower. This new plant species only lives in one place on Earth, on one single island in Japan near Okinawa. And it actually only occurs in two locations on that island, in a humid evergreen broadleaf forest. And it only represented by about 50 different individual plants. And so this is another species that, although just newly discovered, maybe we shouldn't get too attached to it because it's threatened already. Number eight is a bacteria. This bacteria was recently discovered in the Canary Islands, which are a group of islands just west of Morocco and the Atlantic Ocean. Now, there was a volcano in the Canary Islands back in 2011. It was a submarine volcano, which means it occurred below the surface of the water. As you can imagine, volcanoes really dramatically change the environment. And so what happened around this volcano was increased water temperature, decreased oxygen content, and it released massive quantities of carbon dioxide and hydrogen sulfide. So these are really big changes to the environment. So what resulted from this underwater volcano was a complete destruction of the natural ecosystem. Well, I guess you could say nature abhors a vacuum. So something eventually moved in. A lot of times the first colonizer after a destructive event like this is bacteria. The bacteria that did colonize this region is a species that's previously unknown. It's called Theolava veneris. This bacteria does have a common name. It's called Venus hair. And it's because it's a filamentous bacteria. It produces long hair-like structures and it grows in colonies that look like mats. It just looked like flat white mats of fungi. And it covers a large area, about a half an acre, right around the summit of the newly formed volcanic cone. But don't forget, this is underwater, about 430 feet below the surface of the ocean. Apparently, this new species of bacteria has some pretty interesting metabolism. It's got some pretty unique biochemical characteristics that allow it to survive in this very unhospitable environment. So this could be an interesting source of genetic material. So now this bacteria is covering the seafloor in this one area, and it's changing the microenvironment, probably providing the opportunity for other species to start coming in, paving the way for a developing new ecosystem. So a new bacteria, the Alava veneris, Venus hair. Welcome to the Canary Islands. I've mentioned a couple examples of living organisms that are newly discovered that could go extinct, like the orangutan and that purple flowered plant. Well, number nine is an organism that has already gone extinct. <laughs> they know about it from a fossil. This fossil was recently discovered in Australia near Queensland, and it's thought to be of a marsupial lion that lived about 25 million years ago. It's thought that this animal was a marsupial. A marsupial is a very different kind of a mammal. Examples of known marsupials now are kangaroos, koalas, wallabies, Tasmanian devil. And here in the United States, we've got possums. These are all marsupials, mammals that are known for carrying their young in pouches, like the kangaroo pouch. 
This new fossil they found in Australia is thought to be a marsupial. The scientific name is Wakaleo Shutani. They call it a marsupial lion, although when you see artists' rendition of what the animal looked like, it doesn't really look like a lion, but it's big. They think it would have weighed in at about 50 pounds. That's pretty big. That's the size of a Siberian husky dog or something like that. Its teeth makes it look like it was probably an omnivore, not completely dependent on eating meat. So, this marsupial lion, Wakaleo Shutani, hasn't been lurking on our planet for 25 million years, and it actually looks more like something you'd see on the set of a Star Wars movie, but it's a very interesting fossil indeed. Number 10 on our list of new species is a cave beetle called Exudites bellus. It's from China. This new species of beetle is thought to spend its entire life in the complete darkness of caves. Now, animals that evolved to live in caves have certain common characteristics. They're greatly elongated. They often have spider-like appendages. They lose their ability to fly, so they don't have wings. They lose their eyes and their pigmentation. This particular new species of beetle lives on the ground in a cave in China, and it sort of looks like a large ant, but it's stretched out with really long legs. It's about a half inch in length. This beetle was discovered in a cave in southern China where they have a lot of karst landscape like we do here in Kentucky. But this area of China is thought to have the largest diversity of cave-dwelling ground beetles in the world. They already know of about 130 different species of this kind of beetle. But this is a welcome addition. So that's it, the top 10 new species of 2018. I'd like to finish with a quote by Dr. Quentin Wheeler, who's the founding director of the International Institute for Species Exploration that puts together this list every year. Dr. Wheeler says, I'm constantly amazed at how many new species show up and the range of things that are discovered. He says, we name about 18,000 organisms per year, but we think at least 20,000 per year are going extinct. So many of these species, if we don't find them, name them, and describe them now, they'll be lost forever. And yet, they can teach us so much about the intricacies of ecosystems and the details of evolutionary history. Each of them has found a way to survive against the odds of changing competition, climate, and environmental conditions. So each can teach us something really worth knowing as we face an uncertain environmental future ourselves. Dr. Wheeler goes on to say, At this stage, it's us. People are altering habitats and changing the climate. But as inconvenient as it might be to adapt to climate change with our crops and relocate cities in the most extreme scenarios, what we can't do is bring back species once they're gone. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, So just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org 
and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis.